Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. Which Australian city was briefly named Batmania? If your answer was Melbourne, you would have got your two points in a recent age newspaper quiz. But you would also have been seduced by one of the lineages of misinformation that, if repeated enough over time, seems to turn fantasy into fact. Batman is an old English surname, but the fact that it's a homonym of a DC comic superhero also adds just a touch of the fantastic to Melbourne's early imagining. An early, if not the earliest, reference to the term Batmania is in a clearly satirical letter to the editor of Launceston's Cornwall Chronicle of the 13th of June 1835. John Batman returned to Launceston from Port Phillip on the 12th of June, and the Cornwall Chronicle, in noting his interesting expedition, described him as the Tasmanian Penn in reference to William Penn's 1683 peace treaty with the Delaware Indians. But in the adjacent column, a communication signed Wrangleawe, as in Wrangle Away, presented a parody of the proceedings, implicitly critical of the legitimacy of any treaty and the overreaching acquisitiveness of Batman and Wedge. Here the spurious treaty was signed with a tipsy fudgery, as in fudge or fake, in exchange for blankets, tobacco and rum. The suggested name Batmania for the new settlement was, it has to be said, somewhat tongue-in-cheek. So, if Batmania was simply someone's idea of a joke, what was the early settlement called before it was legalised by the government in Sydney? In May 1836, Police Magistrate George Stewart was dispatched to Port Phillip to investigate outrages against the Aborigines committed by certain Europeans in the neighbourhood of Western Port and Port Phillip. Reporting to the Colonial Secretary on the 10th of June, Stewart noted that, quote, the town Bearbrass is on the left hand of the Yarrow Yarrow, about seven miles from its mouth, which at present consists of 13 buildings, viz. three weatherboarded, two slab and eight turf huts, unquote. Stewart's report gives contemporary credence to the bare brass handle, which Robin Anir later popularised in her eponymous 1995 book. As Melbournians of the 1880s turned their thoughts nostalgically back to the 1830s in a golden jubilee reverie, journalist Edmund Finn, under the pen name Gary Owen, weighed into the debate, admitting that his recollection trod on slippery ground. Stuart, according to Gary Owen, must have had a temporary absence of mind, we might say some kind of brain fade, to call it the outlandish Bearbrass. Another pitch to call it Glenelg, after the Secretary of State for the Colonies, also received little traction. Bearbrass, indeed, seemed to have been plucked out of a longer list of alternatives that included Bearport, Bearheap and Bearbury. Ania noted that they were all versions of the place's supposed Aboriginal name, a claim that can be tracked back, for example, to A.E. Martin's 1944 book, 
place names in Victoria and Tasmania, where they are listed as derivations of the Indigenous words Barrowing or Beroon. Bearburp may well be the original name for Melbourne's Western Hill, known for many years as Batman's Hill, and now in the vicinity of Southern Cross Station. With the she-oak forested eastern rise at East Melbourne, called Narloke. There are tantalising glimpses in the early Port Phillip colonial archives of Indigenous naming practices. Assistant Protector of Aborigines William Thomas, writing to Superintendent Latrobe on the 16th of June 1841, refers to Nern as the place where the waters of Cookbrook Brook enter Port Phillip Bay. And his map of the same year delineates Nurm as the general word for Port Phillip Bay. Court Bork Bork, according to Gary Owen, referred to the She-Oak Flat at Williamstown. Nam appears again in the 1840s as the name for Port Phillip Bay in George Henry Hayden's Vocabulary of Native Words, and again in George Augustus Robinson's 1847 journal. In Gary Owen's opinion, quote, the native appellation of the place Nam was such a consonantal barbarism as could not be conveniently mouthed by Europeans. Unquote. On Monday, the 8th of June, 1835, John Batman recorded in his journal I'm glad to state that about six miles up, found the river all good water and very deep. This will be the place for a village, the natives on shore. Hearing the rumours about the new lands over Bass Strait, John Pascoe Faulkner purchased the schooner Enterprise, which sailed on the 4th of August with merchant seaman Captain John Lancy in charge. A regatta was held in Melbourne in August 1838, to celebrate three years since John Pascoe Faulkner's schooner Enterprise discharged its cargo of first settlers on the Yarra's northern bank on the 30th of August 1835. And while Batman's star was ascendant during the 1930s centenary celebrations, it's fair to say that he lost out in the ensuing history wars over foundation rights. Whatever the vernacular terminology in the year or more after June 1835, an illegal settlement was soon to become an authorised colonial outpost. Fearing the uncontrolled and illegal rage for Port Phillip, Governor Burke's proclamation of the 26th of August 1835 declared Batman's treaty void and of no effect against the rights of the Crown. In April 1836, Glenelg wrote to Burke, sanctioning settlement under government control. And in March 1837, Burke directed the town to be laid out, choosing Melbourne as the name of the new settlement after the British Prime Minister of the day. Melbourne Day is now promoted annually by the not-for-profit Melbourne Day Committee, chaired by Campbell Walker. The event has its origins in the early 1990s as Foundation Day. The driving force of the Melbourne Foundation Day Committee was businessman Hedley Elliott, owner of the historic Emu Bottom property at Sunbury, which had been built by enterprise settler George Evans. With the imprimatur of former Victorian Premier Sir Rupert Hamer, 
Elliot and his committee sought to raise awareness of Melbourne's story, celebrate its anniversaries, and showcase everything that's great about our city through annual events, educational initiatives, and community awards. By 2018, the City of Melbourne had withdrawn funding from the Melbourne Day Initiative, with some councillors questioning the appropriateness of 30 August 1835 as the city's historical zero point, and calling for a more inclusive commemoration that could happily celebrate European history and culture, while at the same time better acknowledging Indigenous history and gesturing more appropriately towards the reconciliation process. More recently, of course, a reanimation of the statues debate has reignited argument over the appropriateness of maintaining material and symbolic references to colonial violence and dispossession. Green's politician and Ganai Gujitmara woman Lydia Thorpe has suggested that changing colonial names, including Victoria or Queensland, might be contemplated as part of making peace in a treaty process. There are also other calls for towns like Townsville, Mackay and Gladstone to be renamed due to their links to pro-slavery figures. The fact that Melbourne bears the name of Whig statesman William Lamb, 2nd Viscount Melbourne, was a kind of a quirk of timing. That Melbourne the man was also an advocate of slavery and thought its abolition a folly at a time when humanitarian opposition had reached a groundswell is perhaps more disturbing. According to his biographer L.G. Mitchell, he even delighted in teasing the high-minded on the subject and wrote that if he'd had his own way, I'd have done nothing at all. The Italian philosopher and historian Benedetto Croce saw monuments and tombs as a kind of, quote, act of morality, by which is affirmed the immortality of the work done by individuals. Although dead, they live in our memory and will live in the memory of times to come. As traces of the past, I think city names in their own way can be similarly moral in their sway, and colonial city names represent historical acts of power and possession. As the art historian and critic Peter Conrad writes of New York City, grandiose consecration myths license the robbery of terrain. Place naming might seem rather random. It can be rhetorical and contingent, but it is also an act of ownership with real impact. In Salman Rushdie's latest novel, Keyshot and his imagined son Sancho drive across America, musing on the fact that Indigenous place names have lost their meanings and reference points, deracinated from their power and specificity. Chicago is an onion field. Once there were other words with rights, says Keyshot, but new words were poured over them to take away their magic. From Bulleen and Moraban to Kuyong and Nutterwadding, Wurundjeri and Bunurong place names across Melbourne's metropolitan landscape have long been known. In recent years, Birrarong has been re-established as the name of the river the first invaders erroneously called the Yarra. Yeah.
whatever acts of naming the invaders preferred, there is an alternative shore-to-ship version of John Batman's encounter. Nurm, Bearburp, Narlok, Birarung. These and other Aboriginal names for Melbourne are not waiting to be found. They're waiting to be heard. Well, we're in stage four lockdown in Melbourne at the moment, so we're not in the usual My Marvellous Melbourne uh, studio, but we've decided to have a virtual chat with Rod Giblet, who is the author of a fascinating recent book called Modern Melbourne, City and Site of Nature and Culture. Welcome. Thank you. Before we get on to talking about about the book, Rod, do you, do you want to give us a bit of a, a sense of your background and, and maybe how you kind of got into this subject matter in the first place? Well, it's, it's quite a long story. I, I, I'm from Perth originally. I lived most of my life in Perth and um, I retired about six years ago to move to Melbourne as my son and daughter uh, live here. And uh, when my wife and I were thinking about retiring, we were thinking about where we'd like to to retire to and we decided that the um, the strong bonds of family were strong enough to want us to come to Melbourne so we decided to move to Melbourne. But when I was living in Perth I was in the process of writing a book called Cities and Wetlands um, which I concentrate on just about every city you can imagine. London, Paris, Berlin, Hamburg, St Petersburg, Venice and a whole host of North American cities. And I was giving a paper at uh, Edith Cowan University where I was working at the time on Toronto and, and a woman there, Robin Ryan, said, oh, did you know Melbourne had a lot of wetlands? And I said, oh, I don't want to know about that. I, I finished that book. And um, she lent me some of Gary Preslin's books um, about Melbourne. Um, and I, I read them and I got fascinated. And I also was, was very fortunate to make contact with uh, Janet Belitho, who'd been the mayor of Port Phillip. And we started exchanging emails and she put me onto history of South Melbourne and so forth. So the, the, just the ball got rolling from then. And when I was starting to, to read about Melbourne, I realized that there wasn't very much about Melbourne that placed it in the international context. And that really is what my, my book does. It places an international context by looking at um, Melbourne as a city of wetlands, uh, many of which have been lost, many of which have been landscaped into parks and gardens. And Albert Park Lake is obviously, or Albert Park is the obvious uh, example. But also I, I have a long-standing interest in, in writers about the modern city. And I thought there was a lot more that could be done uh, looking at Melbourne within the context of, of the rise of, of modern cities. So the first chapter is called um, Australian Capital Modernity. So I'm suggesting that Melbourne for a long time has been um, an icon of modernity and the cover of the book um, kind of conveys that as a photo on the left-hand side of Eureka Tower and on the right-hand side of the Eiffel Tower. So I do have a chapter on Melbourne as the Paris of the South looking at particularly arcades, but also the similarities between the Yarra River and the Seine River. And your, so your background is in, I think you would call it environmental humanities. Is that what, so, so what is that? 
Yes, well, yes, it, it's kind of um, my background is in that, but it, but I was kind of doing that before it was called that. <laughs> um, um, I, my background is in, in, I suppose, humanities in general. I, I, I did a degree in, in English honours at UWA back in the in the late 1970s. Um, I did some history and philosophy. So, but then part of part of my interest in wetlands came because of the fact that we were living next to a wetland in Perth. And um, after I'd finished my PhD, I was wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I started realising that a lot of local people hated um, the wetland. Um, it was a source of midges and that was preventing them from having their God-given um, right to have a barbecue. So I, I, I started thinking about, well, you know, why do people dislike wetlands? And and I thought of things like uh, C.S. Forrester's African Queen, which is a wetland that doesn't get very good press and kind of the ball got rolling from there. And I, I wrote several uh, books about wetlands um, from a cultural um, and literary point of view. And I was also active in, in local conservation uh, with, the, with the wetland next to which we live and, and wrote books about about that wetland so it's Cause, kind cause, of because uh, there is there is a deep sort of yeah there's a there's an environmental sensibility there around ecology around this sort of holistic view of the sort of nature city kind of binary isn't there yes yes and i and i wanted to um i don't really like to use this word much but to, to deconstruct and, and decolonize that kind of binary and some and it's it's reflected in the title of this book that it's a, it's about Melbourne is a city of and site of nature and culture. So I'm looking at the the tensions and relations between nature and culture now within the city. Now you could look at um, the Botanic Park. You could look at the Yarra River. I mean, it's a canal from basically Punt Road to the to the bay. So there's a whole range of ways in which you can look at um, this kind of um, tension between nature and culture, and that. Mm. Uh, the way in which we understand nature is, of course, so always cultural, but we always rely on, on nature. We, uh, we, we live in a bioregion in Melbourne, the bioregion of the Yarra and Maribyrnong rivers, and um, it's, a, it's a very um, rich uh, place. And yes, there is a, an environmental sensibility uh, around this and a lot of antipathy uh, to wetlands, and that, that was certainly the case in the early days of, of Melbourne. The book's called Modern Melbourne, but it's actually very much, uh, as you say, this sort of layering of uh, sort of 19th and 20th century kind of historical processes. Uh, I mean, it's quite a compendium of Melbourne's uh, environmental and social and cultural uh, history. And I think you, you'll sort of draw the reader in with, with this sort of title of Modern Melbourne, but it actually is challenging Melburnians particularly to actually see their city in this sort of layered historical way. You mentioned the importance of comparison of a more international global context. So maybe picking on the Yarra and picking up the theme of the, of the Eiffel Tower, what do we learn about the Yarra that we didn't know by putting it in this context of, of that kind of comparison? Well, I mean, in, in Paris, I mean, the, the, the Seine is an important defining feature of, of, of the city and obviously the left bank and the right bank. And I suppose within, within Melbourne, the, the, the city, the, the, the river has been a defining feature and, and divide uh, in the city, you know, whether you came from the north or the south. And that's, I mean, that's, that's, that comes through in, in literature, in, certainly in Tony Birch's uh, recent novel, 
Ghost River, but it goes back to George Turner's um, The Sea and Summer. And I think um, the way cities are constructed is not kind of arbitrary. It's a product, it's a product of their geography. And the, in Co Collingwood, we know, was the archetypal working class suburb. And you've got you no know, Q as the kind of archetypal and Turak as the arch archetypal upper class suburbs. And, and, the, and the river's a strong divide between the two. And there's this sort of sense that it was the river was a, uh, a sanitary cordon. This is kind of a concept that goes back quite a way uh, between, between both sides of the river. But then I think you, you go further down the river and the fact that um, Cood Canal was constructed uh, basically from Spencer Street, I suppose, um, to, to down to, well, across what was Fisherman's Bend and that cut off a, a, a thriving wetland. And that, that, that history is not really commemorated you know, much um, in Melbourne. I suppose part of that was part of my wanting to write this is because I worked in Perth for so long and seen some um, attempts in Perth to um, understand its history, including a project that I'd been involved with at the uh, Perth Town Hall in, in, nine, in 2014. There was nothing similar in Melbourne there, um, until there were a very recent exhibition that may still be on at the Historical Society about Blue Lake or, or um, West Melbourne, North Melbourne Swamp, Bat Batman Swamp has, has many names. So until that exhibition, there'd been really nothing in Melbourne looking at Melbourne as a city of wetlands. So that was um, partly uh, coming from Perth and wanting to see something similar happen in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. You used the phrase before decolonizing place, and that's something that you do talk about in the book and elaborate on. What does that fundamentally mean, decolonizing Melbourne? Obviously, we can't you know, take Melbourne back to the way it was in you know, 1835 when the first settlers uh, arrived. Um, but I think we can commemorate um, the history and acknowledge the history, acknowledge history that's been lost. And there's a couple of places that I particularly particularly that I look at this, you know, one, one is Fed Square, uh, which was built on wetlands, but there's nothing in F Fed Square that acknowledges that. And I don't know whether that will be in the current plan to redevelop it. Another place is uh, the Botanic Gardens. Um, the lagoon in the Botanic Gardens was a wetland. And I have, have been in discussions with the director of the gardens to try to get some sort of display of, of photographs that trace the history of the garden. So it's basically, um, as I said, we can't go back to what we were, but we can, I think, commemorate and acknowledge. You make, I think you make the point, if I remember correctly, in that uh, chapter on the Botanic Gardens about the possibility of restoring, of restoring yes. those wet wetlands or kind of reconnecting with the river. Yes, well, the Alexander Drive goes uh, through there and it, you know, it's, it's kind of an iconic um, parkway but it, it, the the lagoon was connected to the river, and it's you know it's possible to, to think about having a swale that you know goes under the under the road. I mean, some of this is kind of pie in the sky stuff, and it's not. It's kind of putting putting it out there and um, getting people to think about you know how this might might happen. I know in the botanic gardens they have kind of put in some uh, wetland vegetation in floating reed beds, but it, it's still got the, the lagoon's still got hard borders. And that's perhaps unlikely to change, but I think it's just um, through, through through maps. I mean, maps are powerful. I mean, there are maps that and and views of Melbourne that show um, the 
the lagoon in the in the botanic garden connected to the river and it was a billabongs so it's sort of acknowledging that history of the billabongs that were downstream but still survived further upstream such as um in bulleen and uh, bowl and bowling so yep yep and even using those uh you know, original Indigenous names that actually yes. relate to locality very much. And, and some of Melbourne's suburb names, obviously, that do have Indigenous names, although we've kind of lost our contact with the sense of what they actually, you know, meant locally in terms of the, the ecology and the environment. Yeah, well, Bolan, Bolan, you know, Bulleen, I mean, it's a very interesting area and... Um, just acknowledging you know, that that history and, and connecting uh, to that history, which is quite is quite well documented. But I think I mean, part of the point of you know writing a book is is that a lot of people don't know what you're writing about. And I think um, you know obviously Gary Preslin did a lot of work a long time ago, and is actually his uh, planning to is planning to do or is in the process of writing a book about Melbourne wetlands. So um, there's still that sort of sense of of, of connecting to place and understanding the Aboriginal, uh, rich Aboriginal history that, that we have here in Melbourne. So is the book an optimistic book or a pessimistic book? Um, <laughs> and I, I, I was sort of taken with one of your lines towards the end where you talk about the city is a body, but it's not necessarily a healthy body. And I yeah. guess that's a, cla- a classic sort of metaphor yeah. um, over the centuries, but are you kind of glass half full or glass half empty on this? I always try to be glass <laughs> half full. I mean, I think there's a lot of positive things that are happening. You know, looking at looking at the wetlands that were uh, have been here in the past and are still here um, is a way of um, reconnecting to that kind of bodily place in, in which we live. And I think, again, in your concluding yes. um, sort of paragraphs in the book, um, you draw on that metaphor of the, of the city as a body in terms of, you know, the skyscrapers as the head and brains and the water supply and the sewage system as the esophagus and intestines and, and elaborate that. And, you know, for, for want of a better metaphor, it's actually quite a good one, isn't it? Yeah, I mentioned before the idea that, you know, we do live in the, in the bioregion of the Yarra and Maribyrnong rivers, but that's also, I mean, that's also an airshed. The air in Melbourne is is not the best, um, but you know, we we live here. And we we depend on the water. We you know we depend on the water that the the that is dammed in the Yarra, um, and most of our food you know comes within you know within Victoria, as or largely within actually the the Yarra and Maribyrnong catchments. So, you know, this is the place that that we live, and um, it's our food bowl. And understanding that you know, we are in symbiosis uh, with it, um, and we depend on it, so we 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 should be looking after it um, more than we do. Mm. In these very extraordinary times that we're living in at the moment, and in Melbourne, we're in a you know stage four lockdown, and I, I guess it's always interesting to speculate. Uh, you know, what the experience of such a, a distressing and difficult, you know, traumatic period globally, but certainly in terms of what's going on in Melbourne at the moment. And it sort of causes us to think about how we might change things in the future. It's it's a common thing in the in the press at the moment to kind of think, well, what, you know, how is this going to change the way that we think and feel and do things in the future? Are there better ways to do things? You know, we can look back on with the benefit of hindsight on periods of Melbourne's history where there's been tumultuous change that, you know, the gold, the gold rush period mm. 
obviously with a with a threefold in, increase in population in a decade and the, the huge social and environmental disruption that occurred. Then we could look at the, of course, at the adding 30s with the invasion of, of white settlers from Van Diemen's land and the impact of that on Indigenous populations and so on. How do you think we're going to look back on this period and what might it possibly teach us about about the urban environment uh, and about our relationship to it? Because it is, it is, there is an emotional element to it. And I think what a lot of people are feeling in lockdown is, and you see it in the, in the ways that people are saying how much they miss, you know, they miss the city, they miss the parklands, they miss being able to go out and about in their usual ways. How could we look at this moment in terms of a force for, for changing our fundamental approaches to the city you're kind of the, the social fabric has been rent because we can't we can't go to shows we can't go to restaurants now we can't even go to cafes so that's kind of that kind of that's that's a blow to the very heart of melbourne i think um and but, but that is an opportunity and I, and I think a lot of people who are thinking about what might happen after this are thinking the coronavirus is an opportunity to to rethink the way in which um we live and the city well you know what will take some time and I don't want to speculate too much about what's going to happen in the future because that's fraught with all sorts of difficulties. <laughs> it will take some time to kind of re-establish that social fabric. But I think you know, Melbourne is a resilient place. But I, yeah, I think it's an opportunity to rethink Melbourne's life, what it is, how it relates to its place, to, uh, to its history. And one of the places that I do look at a little is um, the Docklands and um, there's you know, still redevelopment going on down there and uh, the horse may have bolted. But I think there's possibilities of looking at uh, Melbourne reconnecting um, to, to its history and having a sense um, that is in a, it is quite, it's quite fragile. I think you know, we go along day to day pre-COVID uh, not thinking much about the fragility of, of who we are and where we live. But coronavirus, COVID has certainly exposed that kind of fragility in the fact that we are living in Victoria in the corona capital of Australia, <laughs> coronavirus capital of Australia, you know, means that we, it, you know, things can happen that kind of, uh, that show how vulnerable uh, we are, you know, as, as biological beings. Um, and I think uh, understanding that connection to place and to the bioregion could be a way of of, of um, revaluing um, where we live, you know, revaluing yeah. uh, the catchment. One thing I think I sense is, I mean, Melbourneians have always sort of loved the outdoors and getting sort of out there. But as we've contracted to our more local neighbourhoods and localities, and at the moment we're only allowed to go out for an hour a day to exercise. So we're actually, we're actually turned sort of in a little bit to our local environments. Yes. And what I, what I think it's meaning at the moment, and I see this in various ways, is that people are actually looking at different yes. ways at their neighbourhoods in ways that maybe they hadn't before. So they're, they're walking on local tracks, they're going down to the local creek and actually seeing some of this sort of urban ecology, perhaps in a way that, that, yes, that yeah. they weren't quite attuned to. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very good point. And I think, um, yeah, people are, you know, going, well, where I live, going to Merry Creek and um, appreciating that more because they can't go further afield. And I think, you no. Know, I suppose a larger issue here is coronavirus has, has exposed the fragility of tourism as an industry and how much um, the, the modern world and, and capitalism in general um, depends on tourism and the fact that we can't go 
jaunting off overseas or uh, even interstate now means that we do we are focused much more on the local environment and I think we can start to have as you say an appreciation for that local environment because you know we, it's 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 immediate and we, and we see it and we start to see it as as more valuable because it is it is our home it is our context and and there's a lot of a lot of cities around the world that have been involved in um, wetlands rehabilitation. So I think there's a great opportunity there. And the, the design that they have done for that, it's in a book uh, called In Time with Water, Design Studies of Three Australian Cities, published by UWA uh, Press. They look at ways of, of, of not only creating, uh, recreating wetlands, which will have a kind of a flood mitigating um, benefit uh, for that area, but also creating precincts for people uh, to recreate, you know, boardwalks, you know, better, a better cycling track through uh, through North Melbourne and Flemington up in, you know, through the upfield railway line. So I think, you know, there are opportunities there, um, whether, whether, whether they'll be mm -hmm. taken. But I think for me, uh, the way we look at the city is not just a kind of a, you know, well, pie in the sky, but it does have kind of um, real um, impacts and, and outflows in terms of wetland ar architecture, and that's that's something that's I think been developing around the world. One fantastic uh, site in Shanghai, but there have been others in San Francisco, and, and it I think Melbourne's been a bit slow um, in getting on board. I mean, Auckland has a wonderful uh, Docklands area that uh, has rehabilitated wetlands, so um, Melbourne hasn't had many, and that's something that certainly could come out of this kind of a, a new. Um, understanding of the place in which we live and a new drive to um, acknowledge that history and rehabilitate out the history wherever we can. Well, I think your book's given us a wonderful, as I say, kind of compendium and uh, you know, window back into the, the past to remind us, and as you mentioned before, a lot of this history uh, is not new, but it's the capacity that we have to, to kind of listen and tune into these deeper understandings. And I think if people read your book, they'll certainly walk through Melbourne with a very different sense of its sort of deep, deep history and deep time and, and what modern Melbourne can and should mean, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it's a terrific book. It's out okay. now published by Intellect Books. Great, great to talk to you uh, and really interesting to learn a little bit more about the, the wetlands of Melbourne. Thanks, Andy. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you.